Welcome to the Intercut Podcast, the weekly show going over the TV, movies, and entertainment that people can't cut away from. I am your co-host, Zachary Shevich, and joining me, seeking Chance the Rapper's endorsement for his mayoral campaign, Ooh. it's Arturo Zurita. Uh, if you didn't catch the last one, we've been on this binge and all of these movie festival stuff, have not left the couch. It's It was our civic duty. To be quarantined at home and watching all of these movies uh, <laughs> virtually through all of these festivals. We have another one coming up, but of course, Zach was mentioning. It's on Hulu. We were just talking about it last uh, on the last podcast about City So Real being not just the best out of Chicago, but all five episodes ready to stream right there. And, and here I was trying to binge all 270 minutes thinking, I don't know if I'll have this link again. And, and, and now it's now it's on Pops Hulu. Up right on Hulu. I, I can't complain when a masterpiece is available. I can't complain. So definitely check that one out. But glad to have everybody here. Uh, glad to talk about more movies, Zach. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to have participated in our, our various civic duties mm-hmm. uh, around the nation as we uh, deal with some some fallout from the last few days. Something but it's always fun to uh, lose yourself in the movies and TV that's out there. There's a lot of good stuff. Uh, to watch that we've been watching. We're going to talk a little bit about the Philly Film Festival, as well as some movie news a little bit later in the show. But first, make sure you're subscribed to the Intercut Podcast, not just the video podcast on youtube.com slash intercutpod, but on the audio version as well. It's available on most podcatchers. Also, follow Intercut on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We are at IntercutPod. That's at IntercutPod. And that's short for podcast. You can also hit us up at IntercutPod at gmail.com com and leave us a five-star review on iTunes that really helps the show. Art, let's start the show the way we started every year with what we're watching. Take us to Philly. What have you been watching from the Philadelphia Film Festival? I mean, Philly's closer to you, you know. Uh, some of these festivals do have restrictions, and you were still in the area to be able to be there. Hey, look, virtual film festival, it's just as close for everybody as long as you got a VPN. True. Um, <laughs> but no, it was exciting. Uh, some of the stuff that Philly, I know, did differently that I thought was really cool is in Chicago, they had drive-ins, but they're like 100 bucks mm-hmm. a piece. Uh, Philly was cool because, sure, they had some price drive-ins, but I really appreciated the free drive-ins that they had. You literally mm-hmm. just had to reserve a ticket up online, and you just show up, and all six people, however many people you can get into your car, you're able to watch some uh, free drive-in screenings over there. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, Philly has always done a really cool thing. Uh, I think they call it uh, Philly Film Fest on Us, where they try to have some of their programming available for free uh, just for the citizens of Philadelphia, people in the area, uh, which, you know, having gone to college in Philadelphia, that was like a really useful uh, experience to be able to go and see Film Fest movies without the worry of you know, paying for something that you're not sure you want to pay for. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's always been a festival that I've really liked. I think they have great curation over their choices. Uh, and I think we got to see a lot of really good movies this year through the Philly Film Fest. Yeah, it was really solid. I always like adding a new film fest uh to the lineup and especially with virtually it makes it super possible. So I was able mm-hmm. to get the uh, j- just a hundred bucks, a hundred dollar um Long distance pass, which meant that if you weren't in the area right there next to Philly, you were still able to catch a buttload, over 30-something movies that were just available for you to stream right there. They went through the same rules where you have your little schedule, and on Tuesday at 7, this one opens, the next one will open at Wednesday at 9, and then it's available for you to watch. So we got a good amount. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you want to begin, if there was anything that stood out to you. I know we also got some screening links as well, so shout out to uh, the publicist for providing those. But yeah. 
Um, I mean, we've got a whole a whole bunch here. Uh, I can start with alphabetically what was first in my list and also maybe the best movie that I saw at the Philly Film Fest, which was Apples, written Apples. and directed by Christos Niku, uh, who I think we've mentioned on a previous podcast that he's the second assistant director to Yorgos Lanthimos on Dogtooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is his feature directorial debut. The movie Apples takes place in a world where the society has been plagued by this mysterious uh, spreading of an illness that gives people amnesia. All these people are suddenly coming down with amnesia. And Aris, a middle-aged man, is then put into a new identity program that's used to help people with amnesia reacclimate into society. Uh, and from there, you get a movie that's very deadpan and irreverent with this kind of underlying sadness. Uh, you know, it resembles a lot of Yorgos Lanthimos's work in the... Uh, in the very bare bones delivery that a lot of the actors in this film give, but the movie that it really reminded me of tonally was was her. Uh, th- this just kind of okay, it, it very this guy who feels like lost among society and and lacking a connection to uh, the greater world uh, because he is in this place where he doesn't seem to know anybody yeah. or or have these memories for people. Uh, and the way the movie unfolded, I was really, really into this one. I think there's a lot of very charming bits of humor, a uh, lot of melancholic moments, and ultimately a, a really satisfying uh, way that the plot kind of hits you unexpectedly by the end. I, I thought this was a f- solid movie, one of my favorites from any festival I've seen this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed it as well. I know, I believe it's Greek's entry uh, to the Oscars as well. So Is it? That's cool. Yeah, so that was a cool thing that a lot of these Philly ones have is that they're actually going to be the candidates for perhaps the inter- international uh, awards at the Oscars. But um, I know Kate Blanchett also produced this. And hmm. I also enjoyed the story because... He's got that Yorgos in him and where you'll be like, oh, the Polaroids and the way that you use it and you played with memory. Is that is that a take on the selfies of today? And he goes, why not? <laughs> sure, <laughs> why not? Uh, but I really like how he played with memory in this and just that idea of uh, what's revealed later on. And I think it's, it's got um, – it's, it's a, one of those that's really worth rewatching for the little bits and pieces that you may have missed. Sometimes it gets a little too goofy with the things that they have him do when he enters this memory program. But I also like how fleshed out the world feels, which is something that, again, Yorgos does a lot within his films. Um, the fact that it was shot in 4.3 also does like a really good job at, at showcasing the where his state of mind is as well. Um, but I enjoyed it as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I, I almost want to talk to you about the twist without talking about the twist, but like uh, it's done in this really kind of uh, it's subtle way that I feel like you got to be paying attention to what's going on, and that's yeah. something I really appreciate about this as film. It was le- as it was leading up to it, I was like, yeah, there's a reason why this was on the Telluride list for sure. Um, but no, yeah. I'm excited for more people to catch this one. This would definitely be one that I wouldn't mind entering the final like countdown when it comes to the international Oscars. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm curious to see what other people take away from it because it's an interesting world where there's no there's not really cell phones. You know, he's able to create this environment um, that feels lived in, even when it gets a little too goofy with the stuff that they have him do at the center. Totally. Uh, another movie that we caught was one that originally debuted back at Sundance. Neither of us saw it there. Farewell Amor. It's written and directed by Equa Masangi. It's her feature debut. And it's the story of Angolan immigrants coming to America. Uh, what's interesting is this is a movie kind of told in three separate parts. Uh, it's told from the father's perspective, from the mother's perspective, and from the daughter's perspective. And what you have is a really interesting 
cultural clash where you have this father who has been in America for 17 years sort of working and trying to establish uh, roots in order to bring his family over, uh, something that I think we, you know, if you if you know uh a lot of immigrants sort of take this path in America by uh, some people starting to come over and either sending many money back or, or mm-hmm. getting their family to a place where they can join them here in America. So after those 17 years of uh, working uh, away from his family, the mother and the daughter, the now full grown daughter uh, join him. And uh, you know, there's uh, they, they're divergent in uh, their religious beliefs, in their cultural comforts. Uh, it, it, you know, it's a s- state of shock for a lot of people, and they have to grow into becoming a family again. I, I thought this was pretty beautifully told, albeit light on story, uh, but just well, well articulated, a type of story that I think is very common uh, that I haven't necessarily seen uh, put on film before. My second favorite of the fest. This was one okay. at Sundance that kept getting away because it was a lot of early screenings, and I'm glad I finally caught it. I believe Philly awarded it with, if not a runner-up, I believe something dealing with narrative or first feature. It and, was one of their award winners, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the director, I know she said she had based it off of her aunt and uncle who moved here, so I know that there was a lot of little experiences that she was able to adapt and put on screen, and I personally really loved the different perspectives that it was able to cover. You know, um, another Sundance flick which displayed as well um his house which we talked about in lme streams was you know kind of covering that clash of having to leave but as a horror film and over here it's like you said it's almost like this disjointed broken love story of Mm -hmm. they all grew apart and as difficult as it is to get the visa to go somewhere when it's taken so long it's just as difficult to try to put that family together and i don't know all of it worked for me from the performances to the way that it was told and the way that it was directed and yeah, absolutely recommend it. Only one other movie beat this one. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so you liked that structural element of how it kind of shows you one side and then you get a different Love- perspective because it's it's pretty interesting the yes. way they're able to kind of, uh, you know, give you a different... Uh, kind of completely flip your head on certain moments in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful because that that's a movie where we'll be talking about other films that we saw at the festival where the perspective of the different characters all come together for a bigger narrative. Um, mm-hmm. And it it cohesively works, especially within the the family dynamic and how they're all trying to achieve different things, with the main goal being to try to be a family again. And fantastic, it worked fantastically well for me. And I hope yeah. I hope other Fair- people get to catch it. Yeah, well, Farewell Amore, uh, luckily, is one of these movies that actually does have a release date not too far from now. Mm-hmm. It'll be available in theaters and on demand December 11th. So keep Worth that it. one on your radar. High combo price. Freeland, another movie that I wanted to talk with you about. Uh, it's been hitting up a couple of these festivals, co-written and co-directed by Mario Ferloni and Kate McLean. Uh, he mostly works as a cinematographer. She's primarily a producer, but this is their feature debut as both writers and directors. And this one stars Cresha Fairchild, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the Trey Edward Schultz movie, Cresha, from a couple years back, uh spotlighted her I, th- I believe he's her real life aunt, or she's yeah. her his real life aunt. aunt um and uh, she she's got another starring role here and is absolutely incredible playing a marijuana farmer caught in the middle of the wave of pot legalization after she's made a living for years selling marijuana illegally she starts to run out of options in an environment where legal weed is becoming the choice of the nation uh, mm-hmm. It's a really particular, a really interesting particular story, uh, given it's so 
firmly takes place in the now as we are experiencing this uh, transition towards how we legislate marijuana in this country. Uh, And I think it does a good job of highlighting her story of like how when we talk about these big ideas of legalization and ending the drug war, uh, all the lives that get caught up in the center of it. And she just as like a, as a movie about a person running out of options and getting more and more frantic as the film goes on, I thought this did a really excellent job. I agree wholeheartedly. I know that they had also done mini docs and one of the Mm -hmm. docs that they did as their thesis, um, was this movie called, let me see, I have it marked over here, uh, pot country. So they had initially the idea of making this into like a documentary as well or a documentary series. And I believe they still want to do that. But they decided to, you know, actually cast when they were able to get Krisha, make it a whole thing. And they were really big on the idea that it's not just about pot farmers. It's not, you know, it's farmers in general. That idea that you have these big regulations that are coming in and how they kind of like can turn everyone against each other to a degree. Because once you're paying the taxes, the fees that you need to, you start forgetting that you are fighting against the system. And you're more concerned about your mm-hmm. peers who aren't also doing and putting their part in. And it's just, I, I, re- I really like that part of it as it, as it continues to um, grow. And you see all these options that are just running out. And um, Krisha, I thought, did a fantastic job in it as well. Yeah. I, um, the ins and outs of where she goes through and just seeing how technology does nothing compared to when you're trying to do something individually you know and i think that goes for a lot of things for example she treats her business where she's still put in a little nugget (laughs) per container and then she goes somewhere where she realizes oh no this has been industrialized there is corporations already here was it uh new jersey just passed a legalization oregon passed everything from what i heard (laughs) uh, recently so it's just seeing that the gig is up and um the real investors, the real corporations have already been in there, and that free land is no longer there. And while, yeah, it's very right. easy to dismiss, oh, well, it's an illegal activity, but it's no longer an illegal activity. And now that mm-hmm. the big corporations can make money, what's going on? Right. Like, this this could easily be interpreted as a story of corporations taking over small businesses, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she She's just this woman out on the farm with a few helpful hands just trimming the buds and doing it all by hand and you see the way in which uh the industry has been more automated and and expanded and how somebody like her just wouldn't stand a chance uh and it'll be interesting to see like in real life the ways in which people like this are ultimately swept up and affected by uh moments like this i think the movie does a really good job of enca- of encapsulating that uh, i found it to be a little less uh heart pounding and thrilly uh in the way that it wants to be towards the end i was more I into you. it when it was just kind of a drama in the beginning mm-hmm. um but it's it's still a very interesting film yeah lily gladstone also does a great job in the movie as one of the girls who's helping her out and really wants to like follow her she wants to go back to school and that just idea of are you going to trust this woman to carry you through and then you have the other um the dude who played josh oh i hated him in the movie which means he did a great job so uh yeah i'm curious to see what more people think about this one and i'm very curious to see what the directors do and if they follow up um with that series that documentary series should we talk i'm your woman let's go I know you hit this up uh, at Chicago and talked a little, a little bit about it there. I was able to catch up with it at Philly. Let it's me know. The 1970s crime drama uh, about a woman forced to go on the run after uh, her husband 
seems to sort of disappear or, or something. Uh, and you've talked about it a lot as like the other side of what happens when the door is closed and the Godfather. There's a shot early on that seems to kind of very explicitly be referencing that famous shot in the Godfather. And, and in those first 30 or so minutes, it's really, really good in the way it, it just keeps you on edge. It's so tense. It's It doles out so little information. She's just swept along mm-hmm. uh, in, in trying to you know, save herself, it seems like, but not really being told why she has to go anywhere or who's coming after her or why, why anybody would be coming after her. Uh, I... I, I those first 30 minutes to me were expertly, expertly done. And and then it became a little bit of a game of waiting for all the polices to uh, all the pieces to collide. Yeah, uh, it doesn't necessarily retain that momentum throughout. So I don't know if I I wasn't fully along with this one. But in those in that opening, I was really, really hooked to it. Yeah, know? that was I think one of the biggest things that this movie had going for it, because it's like the cast is fantastic. And honestly, through and through all the new characters that you meet, I think at different layers to the story as well. Absolutely. And it's a very interesting perspective to have. Because um, I know the director and the producer slash writer, if I'm not mistaken, Jordan Horowitz. Um, yeah, they're married in real life. So they were really just building off of some of the previous stuff that they had made. And um, I would I would also recommend Reprisal. I don't know if you ever caught that on Hulu. It's kind of a very similar thing where she's kind of taking in charge of uh, all the like gang stuff that that's happening. And this kind of um, was in that vein. But uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how this one does when it rolls out, I believe, coming out in December, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, it'll be available on Amazon Prime Video Ooh. then. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about New Order? If you want to, Zach, if you want to, <laughs> let's go. New order. Uh, yeah, this is this movie is a lot. Uh, it's a movie set in at in the beginning at a high society wedding, and uh, one of the things that I think the f- film does really well is in the way it'll slowly build. Uh, to revealing what it's actually about. Uh, people start showing up at this wedding talking about there being unrest, and then a couple people show up with a little bit of paint on their clothes, and you, you get the sense that uh, there is something bigger happening in this world uh, that, the, that the wedding has been isolated from. But then everything blows up, and you get a full class warfare film uh, where... Uh, people come in and uh, hold rich people at gunpoint and steal, and uh, it becomes this whole uh, war that uh, flips the Mexican society in the film on its head. Uh, it's the latest film from writer-director Mi- uh, Michel Franco, who has been known for some controversial films. I know, Art, you have done a little bit more uh, research into some of the things that he's been talking about in regards to this movie. Bro, I've never seen a man release a movie for his country and then duke it out and box out with all of the critics and people from his country while asking him to go see it in theaters. Uh, yeah, no, I know this got a lot of backlash when the trailer came out. Um, and, you know, rightfully so. I think uh, I don't hate it as much, but I completely understand the perspective uh, of a lot of people, be it either because it's too violent, and I feel like that's going to be a lot of the American position. You're either going to vibe with yeah. the nihilistic nature of this movie, which some people are also going to absolutely adore. Um, but in terms of what it's actually referencing to, and if you've ever been to Mexico and how the military police force is over there, and uh, just a breakdown of also how it is in and that idea of, I mean, uh, 
how the partygoers look as opposed to the people who are taking over, I guess, has been a really big yeah. uh, matter of discussion, which the director himself states that it, unless you've seen the movie, which we have, <laughs> um, you yes. are just projecting. But we have seen the movie, and I can see. I, I get what he was going for, and I know he said he stripped back a lot of um, the story elements because it is one that is very heavy-hitting. The movie that it reminded me the most of was Children of Men, and I got him on record saying that it did rem- that that was one of his biggest influences, and I was like, ah, yes. Well, you are junior, junior Children of Men because um, <laughs> I feel that a lot of it can be argued that it's just for shock factor and that yes. there's no real lesson in there. But then the lesson could also be as nihilistic that everyone's bad, there is no good, everyone is responsible for all the bad things, and that violence, physical violence, is on par with ignorance. Mm. Big words. Um, Yeah. Not so sure, you know, he sells that point. He sells it. He argues it at the very least. And and I think the thing that we're both talking about a little bit here is that there are is a lot of really interesting filmmaking that happens. Like Incredible about, filmmaking. The, that opening where you don't yet know what's going on, but you know something's going on is really effective. Um, it then kind of just explodes into this orgy of violence and, as you mentioned, very nihilistic views yeah. of people. Uh, and, you know... I, I liked it up until it seemed like it was a Fox News nightmare come to life in terms of the way that it just treats like there are these other people and they've got darker skin than you and they've got less money than you and they will get it through any means, violent means necessary. Uh, it, it's just, I don't know if he's explicitly believing those types of things. He claims he does that fear articulated. Right. You know, uh, and I, To me, it was hard to fully enjoy this movie when I was able to intellectualize some of this, these uglier ideas that the movie also seems to be holding. It's Joker. Joker won Venice. This man won Venice. Joker comes out. People are against what it says in society. This movie comes out. The people from that society are upset about it. The movie is made. Both movies are made with the perspective of the director saying, nah, I see it like this. Stop telling me what I am cool but with both movies that are trying to break down society there are still the people who are you are not who are not the main characters who are going you're not seeing society from my perspective and i think that's his biggest thing because i know michelle franco he was wealthy like that is we're in that era now where you do take what the filmmaker's perspective is um uh, and how he was raised and how he sees things. And if he's, he, he wants to get away with not saying a message, but he is saying a message, you know, again, yeah. kind of like Joker where a lot of people, you know, looked at it and said, unless you're <laughs> Arthur Fleck, there's everybody else who is it to a degree represented in the movie. They have a say if they don't like it. And I think the same thing over here, I think it's going to be interesting to see once it gets a full release. Cause I think some people will see this as a masterpiece. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are hating on it. The letterbox is a crazy score. I've never seen a wave like that. That thing looks like the United States Corona map. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's all mm-hmm. over the place, but I think we'll have a lot to discuss once it gets like a full release. Yeah. I would love to do a let us explain on that. Totally. And, and we should mention that the Mexican critics who have, had a chance to see it for the most part are, are pretty uh, upset with this movie um, in terms of some of the things that it depicts, how it depicts them. I, I know before we started this podcast, we were talking a little bit about uh, there's a, a rape scene that's very unnecessary and just kind of seems to revel in the, 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 
the like scare of it, the the pain of it. It wants you to experience that pain in some visceral weird way yeah. that just sat wrong with me. So as much as I I can't uh, argue the fact that this movie. Uh, kept me paying attention to it throughout that I I was not bored by it and in in fact impressed by it at several moments. Uh, intellectually, it just doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't make me feel good. Uh, so I don't know if I can wholeheartedly recommend it. That's you know? effective right there. I, I'm curious yeah. to see people's reactions to it, but with that warning that it is a tough watch. And Michelle Franco, just he just needs to embrace it. He needs to go above yeah. what Todd Phillips did and just embrace it and go, stop trying to deflect and just say, yeah, it's rough, it's tough, this is the movie you made, go for it. We will see. Oh, one thing that I did want to add about Michelle Franco, uh, he had said, because this is also one of the five that's still shortlisted from Mexico to be an international feature um, submission for the Oscars. Could be uh, Mexico's submission to the Oscars, yeah. I prefer I'm no longer here and I carry you with me, but... Um, he he has a lot going for this one. I know a lot of the filmmaking in it had to do with him wanting to capture a lot of it in Mexico. He says it's representative of Mexico, even though he's telling Mexicans to shut up and watch the movie before they give their opinions. He had stated there was a sequence in where he had to shoot it and try to get a shot, but there was military and extras there. And the actual military from Mexico said, no, you are not capturing Mexico like that. But he was like, as a director, I wanted that shot. And even though the producers looked down on him, he said okay, what if I get rid of all the elements, the army and everything else? And they went, what? Okay, go. He gets his shot, added the military, added the extras in post <laughs> through a green screen. So he was able to get what he wanted. So he should just wow. embrace that nature of a director. Be the villain. Just be the one who's trying yeah. to put out the most darkest nihilistic stuff out there um, that I think would be better if he wasn't deflecting from it a lot. Yeah. Uh, some kind of heaven. This was a really interesting documentary uh, that came out of Sundance, originally directed by Lance Oppenheim. Interestingly, this one was also produced by Darren Aronofsky, yes, sir. who saw a, a sizzle reel of the of the documentary and was so impressed by the visuals that he signed on to produce it. His name is the, the second one that comes up in the credits. Uh, this one it takes place in the world's largest retirement community, the Villages in Florida. It's an area res built to resemble like Old Town America. It's got all the amenities that someone could want. People describe it as Disney World for old people. Uh, and I think the interesting thing with this movie is being that it's this retirement village, this place that people are supposed to go to live out their days happily. It kind of asks this question, what's it like when paradise doesn't make you happy, right? Uh, it's got all the things available to you, but there's these people who are dissatisfied or uncomfortable in the center of it. Uh, and it's all done in this beautifully shot, ex extremely impressionistic way that's very sparse on plot, but has, un has really delightful unscripted moments throughout. Uh, and ultimately kind of settles into this portrait of different residents rather than being kind of like a larger statement about like what the villages or retirement even is. Uh, but it's really, really interesting. And I love the perspective of this one. What'd you think? Uh, this one was recommended to me highly by, by our friend um, Andres. He was like, oh, you really got to check this one out. And I remember I like half met the director because <laughs> we like pointed at each other. We're like, hi, hi. Because Andres was like, yo, he became really good friends with the director who he has done a, a, a lot of these mini documentaries that I think are very interesting. He had this one called The Happiest Guy in the World, which was about a dude who lived in a Caribbean cruise for 20 something years. So that's interesting. Um, another one called long-term parking about the um, LAX employees at the airport who 
live in the parking lot. So it's like he's got all of these interesting perspectives of who he decides to document. And now he's got an entire feature length on this community. And like you said, it's shot beautifully. It's very interesting to follow these residents. And like you said, it may not be as joyous as it may see, or somebody's joy isn't necessarily somebody else's, right? It's still in the world. Um, even though they call it, this is where you stop before you go to heaven. One of the most interesting parts for me was that idea of zoning. I don't know if you ever got to catch Patrick, which also is a movie that no. in the in the background, it's talking about zoning. This one, it's talking about zoning. That idea that this is an age-restricted community. It's, it's not a big element in the plot, but it's like it continues to grow and grow and grow. And that means that this is a community where everybody is, one, interestingly enough, only seeing people who look like them. But there there is an age restriction there. And I don't, it's a little gerrymandering-ish to how they like build it and have it grow. But I thought that was an interesting perspective that it was kind of covering there. But the biggest aspect just being um, the people he chooses to follow. And I, I got really absorbed into their stories and... And uh, seeing where they came from and just like hoping for a better life, hoping for that retirement. And um, I'm very curious to see what he does next. Yeah, yeah. Definitely the kind of movie that makes you want to know who directed it and and what are they up to? Have they done anything else that's worthwhile? What are they doing next? Uh, So a big statement movie here from Lance Oppenheim, Uh, even if like. I, I don't know if it's necessarily the most satisfying documentary. Like uh, I kind of would have liked if there was maybe some grander thread that connected it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's very intriguing and clearly done by someone who has an eye for this type of filmmaking. So I will definitely be uh, checking out whatever he does mm-hmm. next. Um, anything else that you wanted to mention from Philly film fest for sure um I know you didn't get to catch mandibles but I think mandibles is uh, a surprising comedy that uh, I was not expecting um, who directed this one Quentin Depew who we've talked about recently for his movie deerskin mm-hmm. which I liked quite a bit this is Bill and Ted uh, a lot of yeah like they're Bill and Ted there's no other way to put it in the goofiest movie possible about two dudes who need to transport cargo and end up finding a giant fly in the trunk. That is the premise of the movie, dude. Like, I didn't know what to do with that. So I just sat down, turned it on, ended up laughing hysterically. There are some characters in this movie that just had me dying. These two are just as dumb as possible. But they give you that they're fleshed out enough and have, like, different mannerisms that they do with their total... I could see these guys being Halloween costumes, you know, and I think that that's one of the most effective parts of it. Um, I truly believe that this director who started off with rubber, who's done some of the goofiest movies possible, that he's going to end up being kind of like everybody wants to work with certain directors because they know them as being really good at what they do. I think he's that person for comedy. We very rarely have like the, ooh, I can't wait to be in that comedy director's thing. It's... We don't have those. I think he's starting to build that because his movies also play the festivals. He's he's a little Yorgos Lanthimos-ish in that he's got such a distinct perspective. Like every single one of his movies has the type of plot description where you read it and you'd be like, that's not a movie. A tire that kills there's people? Not, there's not 70 minutes of entertainment there. A jacket and that speaks? He, and then he, he finds it. He finds 
ridiculous, silly, inventive ways to keep you entertained, to make these characters indelible, to to give you this really unique perspective. Very funny uh, in in terms of the movies he's made so far. I, he, he's that guy, man, and I'm really upset that I didn't get around to seeing Mandibles because you you told me it was great. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I don't think that it is a better movie than Deerskin, but I can say that I had a much better time watching it, I guess, than Deerskin. Um, a couple of other ones that I know were going to get the Oscars nominations for their country. Charter, which I know played at Sundance. Um, yeah, I caught this one at Sundance. Oh, okay. So then we could... Bo- okay, let's both talk about it then. <laughs> um, you go first because I wasn't ready for this. All right. So uh, Charter, I know, played at Sundance. And it's a very interesting perspective. Uh, you'll know the country right now when you search it up that it's going to be submitted for um, about this woman. Sweden, I believe. Sweden? There you go. Uh, this one's actually stuck with me a bit more. I was like, all right, this is an okay movie. But the more that I thought about it, I was like, all right, that's a very interesting perspective to take where you have this mother who, I forget what she did for a living, but pretty much she's left her daughter behind. And it's like mm-hmm. that aspect of, is she allowed to go out and chart and do her own thing? Or does she need to pay attention to this family over here? And it's that back and forth that's going on um, between these divorced parents. And I found yeah, it to be very she- effective. Yeah, she kind of takes her kids on an impromptu vacation against her husband's wishes, and then it's sort of like, is this a custody battle, or is this this something that the cops need to take care of? Exactly. And uh, she's you know ha- has to balance that while trying to give her kids this kind of like idyllic vacation experience, and you see all the juggling that a mother or a parent has to do in a scenario like that, especially when it's clear that she's going through some issues of her own Mm -hmm. on top of it. Um, It's a very intriguing story and I I think very well acted. Uh, Yeah, I I thought Charter was pretty good. And the gender flip on it, because I have seen so many shorts as well as features. We just got cowboys that did the exact same thing. It's always the father kidnapping their kid. Um, But just the way that this one plays out and and I think the ending is what really pushed it over the edge for like Sweden to submit it. Obviously not everyone's going to love it, but hey, they stuck through it and they said that's going to be our ending. Um, One that I saw right after this one as well, also from Sundance, was Herself. Uh, This is a movie that takes place in Ireland and Ireland's been really big recently with Vivarium and a bunch of other movies that they've made about their housing crisis and how they just dude I don't know what happened over there I hope it doesn't happen over here but everything got corporatized for that point and like you're given scraps to that degree mm-hmm. and um, Claire Dunn who actually also did I believe this may be her first feature uh, she does some music in the in the movie um, hmm. I think she learned how to write just for this movie and it comes from the director who also did the first Mamma Mia And I think that that's the most distracting part of it because you have this mom who's trying to build a house by herself, herself, right? And she gets, she has this community that's coming in. It's very more metaphorical about Ireland and how it's people who need to come in and work together. And you see that in the diverse group of people who come help her out. But there are some music choices, very big poppy music choices where you're not just dealing with, is that Sia? (laughs) <laughs> Wait, is the music in the scene? Is it not? It felt very distracting. And then when I saw that it was the director who did Mamma Mia, I was like, I guess we really like these big pop songs. Um, showy. Yeah. Very showy on it. But I, I do like what it covers there, not just on the course of the do-it-yourself attitude, which, again, um, the the actress in it, she learned how to screenwrite. And that was her big thing. She was like, me learning to screenwrite really helped me with this role of a woman who's going to build her own house with her children and, and, and her community. And... Um, 
yeah, just that idea of the do-it-yourself attitude and everything that I- Ireland is going through right now. This would be the third film that I've seen from Ireland and several that I've seen just in general from uh, international films where uh, a lot of the housing problems that we're going through when we have so much space, ironically, mm-hmm. and all the permits and everything you have to go through. But um, again, other than the music, I, th- I thought it was uh, a pretty good watch that I know it's going to be coming out on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I don't know if they've dated this one, but I believe it's supposed to come out in the next couple of months. So, uh, yeah, it definitely one to keep an eye out for on the horizon on Amazon. For sure. Another one that I caught was Pink Skies Ahead, which I know has been getting... Like, people are really hyped for this movie. I had no idea who the mm-hmm. director was, so that, that was on me. But um, it's a dramedy about anxiety yeah. and... Um, people people are really hyped for this, but I guess is all I could say. You know more about <laughs> Kelly Oxford, yeah, though. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of people are excited because it's Kelly Oxford mm-hmm. who became pretty Twitter famous uh, in the in the 2010s uh, for you know her humor. Uh, she's put out a New York Times bestselling book. is is very funny. I I'm, I think she's a good follow on Twitter. But here, yeah, she's taking that uh, filtering her perspective into a movie. Uh, that I I would have to assume at least is partially autobiographical because of how lived in it feels. Uh, I, I got to call, I got to catch Pink Skies Ahead as well. Uh, what were you going to say? It's based off of a short essay that she had written back in the day that she there adapted into a feature. Uh, it also takes place in the late 90s, and I think they do a great job with the setting, um, which I really appreciated mm-hmm. in telling the story. You don't have all the annoyingness of social media, so she's got different interactions with her friends, uh, you know, the same interactions that she has with her parents, I thought were was a really interesting dynamic that they had. Jessica Barden, who I, a lot of people know from the Netflix series uh, End of the Effing World, I think, unless... Yeah. Is that... Okay. Uh, I'm so used to hearing her voice narrating, and if you're a fan of her, right. you're gonna love that. I know the Alita fans are gonna be here as well, because she plays a friend in this. Um, for me, the comedy was good. They have some bits that are killer. But, mm-hmm. And again, this is just for me, so it's subjective. I know some people are going to love it. And if you, if the comedy works for you, this, this is going to be a masterpiece for you. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of setups where I could see the punchline coming and I was just waiting for it. Or like the setup to mm-hmm. it I felt could have been stronger. Again, very subjective. But uh, the anxiety storyline, which is really what it's all about, I thought was handled very well. Because yeah. she is a girl who just doesn't believe in that. Uh, anxiety, for me couldn't be you know Mm -hmm. and the way that you follow her and it's specifically the type of attitude that she has where it's definitely someone who's predisposed to not to thinking that needs to be anything else right um Mm -hmm. and just the situations that she finds herself in but then when she actually goes through those anxiety attacks and the way that it's filmed i thought was uh uh, very effective and i think that's where it it excels at yeah, I wasn't I wasn't huge on the comedic aspects of the movie. I think the characterization of Winona was mm-hmm. unfortunately just like a little bit too aggressive for me. Like I I kept being frustrated with her. I think that this movie is kind of going for a little bit of like uh, Juno, but with anxiety. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily as charming as Diablo Cody's uh, quirkiness. Uh, it's a good performance. Uh, from uh, Jessica Barden, but the character just is written a little bit haphazardly, a little bit uh, too destructive for for my taste. I, I would say uh, just too unwilling to, to to listen and learn. It is in that second half of the movie where she really has to confront her anxiety and starts starts dealing with it more uh, more 
viscerally mm-hmm. that I was won over by the film because the, in its depiction of anxiety and its kind of like loud, uh, constant buzzing effect that it can have. I thought it was really effective. So I ultimately ended up positive on this movie, but I was, I was not as sold with at the beginning in the, uh, in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that for the people who have been looking forward to this, either you follow the actresses or you've been looking forward to the director. I think it's going to hit everything that you needed to hit. Um, but yeah, again, I feel the same way that you did about the beginning, but I'm curious to see if she, uh, Kelly Oxford goes and adapts, um, either longer pieces that she had. I mean, Zola's coming out. That's an adaptation of tweets. So I'd be curious to see an adaptation of, of, of tweets as a movie as well. Anything could work, but, um, yeah. yeah. She has a history of tweeting about her daughter. Uh, she has like a whole series. My seven year old says, so maybe, maybe hey, we're getting hey, the that's Kelly Oxford be, daughter movie. That's the next point. IP. Uh, yep. Let's see, uh, a couple of the other ones that I was able to catch. Uh, I know we had mentioned Night of Kings a bit. Uh, I did enjoy that and the idea of storytelling and and how that becomes a thing, Uh, especially hearing the director talk about uh, Arabian Nights, about how Arabian Nights, Mm. that is that story, how in order for her to not get killed, she just goes for a what what is it, a thousand and one nights, uh, not stopping that story. And uh, I really like that aspect of it and how it just throws you into it, right? I was able to catch that one twice because I was like, I... I need to see it again. There, it was too yeah. much at once. Um, and like you said, I know that that's an Oscar submission as well. Um, a couple of documentaries that I saw that were very close to home for Philly. One of them would have been, uh, as I find it over here, 40 Years a Prisoner, which I believe also won. Right. Absolutely fantastic uh, as a twofer. One as a documentary that's telling you, uh, informing you about the move movement that mm-hmm. happened um, – I can't remember what the dates were, but like several years. It was years, in the early 80s, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, and uh, this whole standoff that happened between the police and this group of people and the very little uh, footage that there is of it, but that still showcases that the arrests, these, it tells you in the title, 40-year-long arrests and even longer for some others. Um, that whole aspect of how that story just wasn't told. Everything was just predisposed and, you know, they believed who they needed to believed. And years later, this uh, director follows up with the son who was born in the prison, who has been right. fighting his whole life to get his parents out of jail. Superb. Um, just from his storyline and, and what you're following. But then again, just learning about that movement and seeing the politics that were happening in Philly. And oh my goodness. I mean, you've seen this in other mm-hmm. stories as well. But again, that's the power of film and being able to document this and put it together for you, for other people to see it. And I think it does a fantastic job of yeah. really just showcasing family and that idea of you never give up on them. No matter yeah. what. Uh, and, and the 1985 move bombing is just one of those pieces of American history that is so under discussed mm-hmm. and, and should be something that's common knowledge given uh, especially how relevant it feels to the struggles we're talking about today oh, in easily. social justice. So uh, for anybody who has doesn't know about it, I mean, first of all, give it a Wikipedia, a Google or whatever for the Philly move bombings. It was 1985, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond 40 Years a Prisoner, which I haven't been able to catch yet, I'd recommend Let the Fire Burn, a documentary from 2013 that okay. I watched for the first time at the Philly Film Fest. Hey! Uh, and and that that one is a very comprehensive look at the, the development of the move organization and how uh, they kind of ended up becoming the focus of uh, Philadelphia police in terms of trying to eradicate them. And it's, it's just a, a crazy story, really awful uh, what, what happened. And 
I'm curious about that other documentary as well. Um, another one that I had that I caught that was a doc was the Whitmans also taking place in Pennsylvania. That's uh, W I T M A N S. I did not know their story. Um, this is uh, John Bonet reversed practically Hmm. in where this couple, you know, they, they start off telling you this beautiful story of their family and their two sons. And then one day a call happens and it's one of the sons calling in the death of his brother who was Hmm. beheaded. And from there you got this crazy journey of following the family and what they had to go through and the court cases that went on, but also all those little tiny laws, all those little tiny investigation details on who it benefits if you want to close the case or, you know, it's a very open um, movie that, you know, there's different sides to it that people are arguing for. And I think it's a very interesting, very interesting case movie as well. But like the case in and of itself and how it was handled, I think um, they, they really break down the procedures that were taken way back in the day when there wasn't that many. Um, protocols, I guess I would say. Right. The same machines that they were using or, you know, technical devices that they would have to find something they realized could also be deflected with something else, you know? It kind of reminds me of the Atlanta the Atlanta Monster series when they talk about the rug and they're like, ah, the rug is all we needed. But they were like, sir, 100,000 people bought this rug, so it's not really an aha moment like you think. <laughs> and um, from that perspective, I thought they did a really good job. And it's just a painful story of this family and what they had to go through. And uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious to see what people think about that one when it gets released. Two more docs I caught. Zappa, directed by Alex oh. Winter. We were just talking about Bill and Ted, and he was able to yeah. you know, um, go up to the wife, I believe. The wife or daughter, I'm not exactly sure. And was able to actually, you know get the um the blessing to be able to release this docu- documentary that covers Zappa's life as much as possible. It is definitely one that's trying to capture everything and I'm a novice when it comes to Zappa. I know who he is, but one of the most interesting aspects of it is calling it's it's covering him as an artist and the big hits that he did, but it's that juxtaposition of how he was a composer. Like you think of this man as a rock star, right? And he had these hits and pop hits with his daughter and stuff. But he wanted to be taken seriously as a composer. And there's this line that he does in documenting him getting older, which I, I really appreciated. Um, and I know that a lot of the footage is also brand new for Zappa fans. This specific line that he captures him saying, uh, middle-aged and then older and older, I am here to assemble music that I want to listen to. And if other people want to listen to it, I will record it. He's recording it for himself, and if other people would like it, he will make it available for them as well. And it was just art to the purest form. It was that idea that um, he realizes how expensive it is to get an orchestra, but he is not going Mm -hmm. to get an orchestra to play his piece if they're not going to promise him rehearsal time. Because what a waste to spend all that money to record what isn't what's in his sheet music. And I I really love that aspect of it. And um, there was a perspective in where he goes on tour, and he just wants to end the tour. And they're like, but you have all these people. And he goes, that was never the point. I was here to make art. I wasn't going to be this business where I become a brand. And uh, yeah, that perspective of it, I thought was really uh, a really interesting thing to to look at him as an artist. Um, so I'm very curious to see what the Zappa fans say when this gets a full release. I know the trailer just dropped Definitely. as well. Yeah, that one I believe is coming out in a couple weeks. It's also going to be at Doc NYC, which I think we're going to cover a little bit on our next. We do have some good episode. ones there. I'll probably catch it by then. So uh, let's talk Zappa a little bit more 
uh, next week. For I'm sure. glad to see that you you liked it, though, because I was curious about that one. And it's interesting, you know, Alex Winter becoming a bit of a prolific documentarian here. He already had the HBO documentary Showbiz Kids earlier this year. Mm-hmm. I've caught uh, some of his previous ones like Downloaded, which is about Napster or Deep Web, which is about like Silk Road and stuff like that. So. Uh, he's developed into having this other career, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then he said when he approached, I have it over here, it was Zappa's wife. He pretty much said he's like, I'm going to be blunt. And that's what got her to say, okay, I give you permission to do it. Um, yeah. And I really like the censorship battles that he fought. Zappa, Zappa fought a yeah. fight, even when it wasn't even his stuff that was getting hit. He still fought it for others. All right. I got a couple more and uh, we wrap up this, this Philly Fest. MLK yeah. FBI. Talk about it. Banger, bro. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Because again, it's another documentary that skirts the line where I've heard some people come out of it. It's like I don't know how to feel. That's he. He said, "This is them okay. If you learn the worst of him, it should not change what you know about the best of him." But this mm-hmm. is really a look at how obsessed that man was on MLK. It's almost like the most disgusting love story I've ever seen. The infatuation that the FBI had on just yeah. wasting money on just. All, all the loopholes and, and, and things that they jumped around to just stalk this man. All the resources that were wasted. And um, the idea that there's still more files that are coming out uh, and, and that yeah. are to come out. Um, great breakdown. The yeah. clips that they have of MLK, I know we had talked about a little bit. They apply to today. There's a lot of people who mm-hmm. quote MLK right now. Well, MLK wouldn't, sir, this is for you. Uh, yeah. He's So here is MLK actually answering that perspective. In- in- incredible. In terms of uh, documenting who he was as a person and the way that he spoke, greatest hits. But again, it's called MLK FBI because there was a nasty infatuation there. And it just makes yeah. you wonder everything else. Uh, real quick on coded bias. There was a line in coded bias how... Oh. Someone had mentioned uh, both a Republican and a Democrat where they were like, how does the FBI have 170 mil, million Americans in their database and we don't know anything about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, watch MLK FBI. Y'all right. gave them the leeway to do that when they created whatever narrative they needed to be able to to do it. Yeah. Uh, I talked about this one a little bit when I was at seeing it at New York Film Festival. And yeah. Just the way it is so comprehensive in showing you the developing relationship, if that's the weird fat, the weird weird word you want to use to describe it, uh, the relationship between the FBI and MLK, they're they're hounding him, mm-hmm. uh, and it shows you just why and how it progresses in a way that for people like us who've maybe grown up hearing about stu- stuff like the FBI uh, wiretapped MLK, it just gives you the details. And, and f- fleshes out the story so much more. And one thing that I really l- liked about uh, the documentary is you hear about people like Martin Luther King Jr., people like J. Edgar Hoover, and they're these iconic names, these very famous figures of history. But a documentary like this shows you how they are people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a really helpful perspective to remember that these are just people, not autonomous powers they're they're people who made decisions and uh decisions that have greatly affected the course of our country and just the course of human history the timing of it one of the big things that the director kept stating was just so you know during this period of time that i'm covering it hoover was the good guy mlk was not Mm -hmm. and in history we don't go back to think about that period of time where there was that much unrest and the narrative was different than what we know it to be today 
Yeah. Yeah. Very well done. Uh, let me go through the, these really quick. Another one was Akasa My Home, which I believe you cut at Sundance. Yeah. Um, that one cinematography because that is cinematography to the max. They just let everything on screen speak for it about this family right outside. Uh, I'm blanking on the on the town. It's in Romania. Romania, the city where the family lives right in the wilderness yeah. and they don't want to bother anyone. Then you got, I believe it was like Prince Andrew coming in and everybody trying to make this a forest preserve. And the moment that happens, you know, sticking to the, the notions that we talked about with Freeland, the family gets uprooted and now they have to come into this concrete jungle. And I really liked it. I, I found myself really um, being engaged to the, the kids, especially, mm-hmm. and that arguments that they have with their father and, and just that, you know, dislocating them from one place to another and, there's a lot yeah. more I want to say about this one, but it's definitely one that earned that cinematography credit. The, the city you're talking about, by the way, is Bucharest that's featured in the movie. Uh, do, do you get that comparison that I made to the wolf pack in the way it shows you kind of like this isolated family and how uh, living in a different way sort of leaves them almost unprepared for living in the real world? Mm-hmm. And how they miss and they miss what they originally have. And even more than that is... How oh, it's spoilers. Never mind. Yes. Yes. Zach. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Zach. Similar yes. to Captain Fantastic too. If you need like a more mainstream reference. Yeah, I didn't want that. to spoil yes. anything, but I, I definitely think it's worth um, sitting with that one and just letting it wash over you. Uh, yep. Another one that I also caught was a son. Woo. One of All the right, last one, this one. One of the last ones that I caught at Philly. Absolutely fantastic about a couple whose son gets hurt and they need to get a organ for him. And it's a war-torn environment that they're in. They're not at the top of the list. I believe it's a Middle Eastern film. And it may or may not... There may be more lies in there, not just with the outside forces at play, but within the family itself. Gripping. I found it to be uh, one of those ones that you're... Like like a page-turner, but as a movie. You're just waiting to see what the next mm-hmm. scene is going to be and the next set piece is going to be. Um, and I thought it was very well done. Think about it like a Middle Eastern John Q to a degree. <laughs> but he's also being... He's also dealing with some internal stuff as well, domestically. Um, and then my final two. Two yeah. of Us. Is a French film, if I'm not mistaken, about these two women who live right next to each other. I know this one also played at New Fest, so I was really excited for it. And everyone just sees them as like best of friends, you know. They they just they just leave their doors open next to the hallway and they just live together and they have their own relationship. But then something happens and the daughter of one of the two women kind of makes it so that their relationship is a little bit harder for them to see each other. And I thought it was a beautiful tale, not just of you know, this LGBT romance that's there, but it's also because they're specifically older, you know? And there's that idea right. that they're always kind of h- hiding things from each other. I know we talked a little bit of um, uh, Breaking Fast from Newsfest. I kind of right. did the exact same thing where they're trying to be something that they would make fun of. Oh, well, let's just pretend and hide it. But we make fun <laughs> of those people, right? And right. Um, I really enjoyed the performances in it and... Uh, but that was pretty good. Uh, I'm trying to... Because yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen the trailer to most of these, so I don't know what I'm allowed to right. say or not. But I thought it was a very um, very well-done love story that shows you that just because people are older, that doesn't mean they can't love each other. That's been a very reoccurring thing. I've seen a lot of these film festivals. There's a lot of directors focusing on older love 
because it should be. Twilight's Kiss being another perfect example that could go along with this one. Um, but I really enjoyed this one as well. Hmm. Uh, and that was a narrative, right? Not a doc. No, yeah, that, that one is a narrative. Um, like I said, I believe it's a French film um, also. And the director had spoken about how to him it's a movie about self-censorship, how you are limiting yourself from who you truly are. And uh, mm. there's some stuff that he says about the daughter as well. But again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but it's an interesting yeah. like psychological interesting. breakdown on the on the characters and what they're what they're dealing yeah. with at that point. Number one movie of Philly Film Fest was The Killing of Two Lovers. Yeah, we just talked a little bit about that on the LME live stream, which we do every Monday on Let Me Explain. Uh, we We missed this one back at Sundance, and the first thing you told me was that you were upset you didn't get to see it on that big screen back at Sundance. This is a filmmaker. This is a filmmaker. Um, I feel bad that I don't even have his name. You got his name? I'm looking it up. All right. So for those of you who saw Marriage Story and you loved Marriage Story, maybe you even thought Marriage Story was a little too scripted. We are big fans of Marriage Story. This is that in Utah, up in the snows, up with no... This is with real people, not people who can afford those expensive lawyers. This is real people who are growing. It's just sadly... The way they are growing is opposite of each other. But this is a family that has three kids. So while they're taking this little bit of a break, you know, it does a great job of you're seeing the husband's point of view, the wife's point of view, and then the kids who absolutely kill it. A lot of these sequences are shot as long takes. You Hmm. you need to have a lot of confidence in your actors if they're going to do that. Especially if they're child actors. Especially when it feels like it's improvised, but every single thing is scripted. They hit every single beat. And the child actors, which you brought up, they're the director's kids, which he mentioned. Wow. I I couldn't believe it. Um, Another aspect that I really enjoyed about it, uh, besides the way that it looks and the ratio that it's caught, um, that it's shot in, and the long takes and all that, is the sound. And I'm so happy as I was searching up interviews that they actually have a featurette already on the sound absolutely blew my mind Mm. uh just the fact that it's not necessarily a composer even though i would still give him the credit of a composer but it's the sound engineer who was able to integrate certain sounds within the movie and kind of play them back and it captures the uh the, the the state of mind that our protagonist is in and just absolutely killed it so performances directing the sound the script, the cinematography, this is going to be a cult classic. I don't expect it to, to be wow. a massive movie, but this is going to be one that I really hope in the future is able to be played at a music box or something because it definitely mm. deserves the big theater experience. I I really fell in love with it. Yeah, It's uh, writer-director Robert Machoyan. Machoyan, I'll put his name on the screen because mm. I'm, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of it. But yeah, shouts to him. It sounds like a... The hell of a movie. I, I yeah, I really enjoyed it. So uh, definitely keep that one on your radar. And a lot of these that we covered here on Philly Fest on your radar because I know they should be coming yeah. out soon. Um, uh, Killing of Two Lovers actually was just picked up by Neon a couple weeks ago. It'll be released on February twenty third, twenty twenty one. And look, you know how we feel oh. about Neon on this podcast. The 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 company of Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Like that's some. That's some good cosign. Zach, right Zach, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but there is a director named Michelle Franco who keeps telling people that uh, Parasite was also a movie that the company who picked up New Order also does. I believe New Order is also a, a neon movie, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we got to give that one a rewatch. But yes, true, neon is massive. 
uh, one of our favorites um, right now. And I, it's a seal of approval recently. I mean, with Portrait, with Parasite, with all of the uh, all the pictures that they've been picking up, Killing of the Two Lovers fits right in there. Yeah. One of my favorites. All right. So glad to hear that that was such a uh, riveting movie, such a worthwhile choice at the Philly Film Fest. A lot of worthwhile choices at the Philly what Film Fest. What a lineup. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully you got to catch some of them. I know on the LME live stream, someone mentioned they saw, what was it, Little Fish? That yes. Get around and to? that's been one that's been playing at a couple of other festivals as well. Uh, I know I need to get to that one. I'm not sure the release date there, but duly noted. Got it on my watch list. Yeah. So uh, that, a lot to be excited for. Stick with us. We'll try and keep you abreast of when these movies are actually going to be widely available. Uh, but yeah, lots of stuff to put on your radar there. But that's about all for what we've been watching. Let us know what you've been watching in the comments on YouTube or by shooting us an email. The address for that, again, intercutpod at gmail.com or at intercutpod on social media. We're going to move on to the yay or nay, where we break down the latest happenings in entertainment, starting with. Warner Brothers announced that they've asked Johnny Depp to step away from the production of Fantastic Beasts 3, which Depp has agreed to do. This comes shortly after Depp's defamation lawsuit against the UK tabloid The Sun was dismissed by a judge. That was in reference to Depp's being called a, quote, wife beater by the paper in relation to his messy divorce from Amber Heard. Depp will reportedly still receive an eight-figure paycheck despite having only shot one scene in Fantastic uh, Fantastic Beast 3 before Sheesh. leaving that production. Art, yay or nay, Warner Brothers is making a wise decision in parting ways with Johnny Depp. I think so. Um, but yep. it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, obviously. But, you know, I, I, I think it's we're in that interesting time where studios do have to pick up and make these decisions where you know Ansel mm -hmm. Elgort with um, West Side Story with all these other we things you know there's different layers obviously when it comes to you know the social media and actual court cases that are happening as is the case with Johnny Depp um, but within the movie and just talking about the movie and the business side of it I don't know how it's going to work when it comes to mm -hmm. the back end and all the other contract stuff like they didn't give a number they just said it was eight figures um but yeah i already know people were joking around saying that it's already going to make more money than, than the movie is at the box office, or he's going to make more money than the movie is at the box right. office um i don't see it as a a bad thing business-wise because if they are already seeing trouble coming and johnny mm -hmm. depp is able to get his money so he's happy you know he decided to do it then you're able to recast the role which he only played a little bit in the first one quite a bit in the second one but the meat of the story was about to come in three, four, and five. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we'll we'll see what they do with it. But I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how studios just handle that as a whole. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and neither of us know enough about the ongoing legal battles that we fe feel like you know it's our place to comment uh, on them. I mean, it, that's not what we do here as a movie review podcast. But just in speaking of like public appetite for these movies, there is this growing drumbeat online of. Uh, disinterest or, or frustration with the franchise for you know having Johnny Depp who has these allegations against him not only that but uh, with the ongoing JK Rowling I was about to transphobia say, I was comments, like wasn't there something else yeah <laughs> it just it just a lot of stuff shedding negative light on a franchise that Warner Brothers is counting on to make a lot of money. A and theme park. I'm sure somewhere there's somebody calculating, like, look, if we pay Depp whatever, 10 million, 20 million, whatever it is, to to go away, 
that that will somehow end up positive in our bottom line. I, like, I don't think this is the movie studio making some kind of like social justice stand business. for for survivors or something like that. It's business. And if if the interest in Johnny Depp is dwindling, which it seems to be, I mean, when's the last time that Johnny Depp really like was a big headliner for a, a blockbuster movie? Uh, then ultimately, like, that's just what the studio is going to do. And I... You know, I haven't seen any of these movies, so I can't really comment on his performance in mm-hmm. it. Uh, it does seem like a lot of people don't really care about his performance in it. I know a lot of people were like, oh, just bring back Colin Farrell Dude, because yeah, I- he was Grindelwald in the first. I don't yeah. understand how that works. To explain Harry Potter to me. But, <laughs> um, yeah, like, ultimately these are these are going to be business decisions just the same way that Ansel Elgort's fate is probably going to be some uh, sort of business calculation as well. A- and I, I think... You know, Warner Brothers is thinking, like you mentioned, like not just about number three, but number four and number five. You know, they, they and everything they else are investing a lot of money in this franchise, in Harry Potter in general. Um, so and in the lore, he's a big yeah, character, I guess, you know, so yeah. it makes sense. And like you said, it's not a justice thing because this has been happening for a while and they didn't care for number two. It's a crunching the numbers type thing. So, I mean, however they yeah. figure that out, we'll see. We don't really care about the actual gossip drama that happens until they make a Sundance flick documentary about <laughs> all their stuff and they sell it then out. Then we'll there. be forced to talk then about we'll it. Then we'll see. Then we'll talk about it, I guess. But yeah, we'll see how yeah. it goes. Variety published new data from an organization called Screen Engine ASI, which surveyed 1,200 American viewers aged 13 to 64 on the films that they streamed within seven days of release in order to pick 2020's most watched streaming movies. Their list has 13 Netflix films in the top 30. However, none of the top three are Netflix movies. Those three are My Spy... Borat 2, Amazon, and Hamilton. Disney. Art, yay or nay, were you surprised by any of the conclusions that this list draws? Um, Yeah, that people have been watching Sleepover that much that 15 years <laughs> later. It appe- you know, so my little sister got in trouble for watching <laughs> a bunch of stuff on her iPad. And I was like, mm-hmm. I know she was catching sleepover. I was like, Sabrina, I didn't know you were catching it that much. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy to think that years later, you can have a box office run like that with with a movie that's been that old. But yeah, I mean, it shows that Netflix is still owning the game, that a lot of people are coming to it. But you have these outliers over here with, what, two of them being for Amazon and the other one being for Disney. And I think they were the biggest boost that they had. Like, I think a lot of people were really looking forward to what... I, mean, I would call them both cultural movements. You know, Hamilton finally being accessible and Borat returning. My Spy was kind of surprising, yeah. but hey, again, that was another pickup that they were able to maneuver and be able to have on VOD because um, that was one of the first movies to get pulled as well early up in March. So uh, I think it showcases that there, there may be a new way of counting box office. I guess that's the yay or nay I'd post to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because right? they're talking about movies that were streamed within seven days. What of about their everything release. else? So, like, word of mouth. It, for me, I I look at something like um, *The Five Bloods*, which is a little lower on this list, but that's one that, like, 
I don't know if there's an urgency around that movie. I know people who are still just kind of catching up with it. And you know? this list doesn't account for them at all. Uh, but it makes sense for something like Borat, which I think everyone was like, well, I have to see what you, what the you hell have he to catch it right away. Yeah. Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there's certain movies that that feed that uh, hunger that are people are hopping on right away. Obviously, Hamilton was this big culture, ph- cultural phenomenon. I feel like surveying. 1,200 people is way too small a sample size. Agreed. There are some things in here that are just straight up strange to me. Uh, Palm Springs was like a movie that I think everyone watched at some point this summer. Had a big... uh, and it's at 26 while Lost Girls, which is something that I feel like the only reason we've talked about it is because it was at Sundance. That's all the way up at 19. Like, it, there's just some strange things here. So I, I don't know if this is necessarily like indicative of culture at large. Mm-hmm. Although there's certainly some movies here that are obviously very popular. They got Mulan really high up here, but extraction and old guard, uh, even trial of Chicago seven. I do feel like a lot of people watch mm-hmm. for sure. I'm just very curious to see how they're going to maneuver the new way of, uh, accounting for what would the box office be? Cause I agree. It's a little bit different when it's not a physical thing. I believe streaming yeah. definitely has the word of mouth that benefits to it. And the calculation should not be seven days, much less a thousand and one people who they randomly met, but no one has a say on all the different streaming services. So that is still out. <laughs> We're still waiting yeah, on that yeah. one. This is still like analytics data firms doing their best to mine data because the streaming services are not giving the hard Nielsen. data. So like we, these are yeah. all guesses, kind of. Nielsen like, is just waiting guesses. there. They're waiting for a law to pass where they could finally be yeah. able to coop up all the data. But we'll see. We need Steve Kornacki to like <laughs> pick who is actually winning the streaming wars yeah. after he's done calculating <laughs> with, the balance. With a little touchscreen like over here. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Ethan Hawke and Maya Hawke are set to star together in Revolver, a comedy about a young woman trying to lose her virginity to George Harrison of the Beatles. Art, yay or nay, the idea of having real-life father and daughter Ethan and Maya play fictional father and daughter makes this movie more intriguing to you. Just a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. I, I mean, I'm curious to see it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, look, the good version of this is Will Smith and Jaden Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness. The bad version of this is Will Smith and Jaden Smith in After Earth. Uh, th- there's, like, there's ways in which this can work out. Uh, I think Judd Apatow is somebody who usually casts his kids in movies and, and does well. Like, their knocked-up appearances are still funny. Uh, Martin Sheen showing up in, in Wall Street as Charlie Sheen's father, that's really cool. But this but, is like, the premise yeah, like this is like the central premise of it. And like, I guess my hope would be that it's not like they're taking a lesser script just for a chance to work together. I, I feel like Ethan Hawke has more opportunity than that. And it sounds like a fun story. So Also, they're both great actors. It's not like a case of like, I don't know how his daughter's going to be in the... We know she's... She's not, she's not yeah. bad at all. She's actually a really good actress. Ethan Hawke's yeah, a- legend, Another way so. in which it's... Another way in which it's different from uh, Will Smith and Jaden Smith is like Jaden Smith didn't really have much to show. No for offense to King Sire, but yeah, <laughs> Jaden didn't really have yeah. that. Yeah, I think she does. Uh, whereas Maya Hawke has now proven herself, whether it's Stranger Things or uh, she even has that small role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm down for this one. Uh, all right, so that's about it for me, yay or nay. Make sure to leave us a question in the YouTube comments or, again, by emailing us to get it featured on the next show. Reach out to us through Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Our handle is at IntricatePod on all three. Be an intercutie and send us your movie, TV, and entertainment questions. Wanted to save like a little bit of time here to talk about the trial of the Chicago 7, the latest 
Aaron Sorkin movie, a historical legal drama written and directed by Aaron Sorkin following the Chicago 7, a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters charged with conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intention of inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Uh, It's an interesting film that talks about uh, a period of history that in some ways feels relevant to our current moment of protest right now. Um, It, of course, has the Sorkin sheen on it uh, with very uh, eloquently delivered monologues and speechifying throughout. Uh, It was number one on Netflix for, for quite a while. Art, what did you think of the latest from Aaron Sorkin? I really like Aaron Sorkin. I think he's one of the best writers that we've had. I defended Molly's game. Steve Jobs is one of my favorites, but I know a lot of people complain about his writing, and I f- finally understand why. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't for me. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just mm-hmm. think it reminded me a lot of God's Not Dead. <laughs> you liked it. I did. I did. And and like we talked about this a little bit in that the Sorkin-ness of it all is really hard to ignore in this one, right? Like there's this there's this very uh there's this idea of like a genuine human good and like underneath it all people are good and if they just if they just hear the right explanation they will make the right choice in a way that doesn't I feel like line up with how the real world works, especially something that's so heavily uh, skewed with politics here. Uh, Sorkin, I think, is a guy who, whether he believes this in real life or he just makes it seem like that's what his movies are about, he believes like the right speech can change anybody's mind. And I, to a certain extent, I like that. Like, I like it's fine. characters who can talk eloquently about things that matter, right? Especially when, when it's not just things that matter to them, but things that actually matter, like some of the things to, being discussed in this movie. Uh yeah, it can be a little bit like all the characters are talking out of the same, are speaking from the same, you know, code book or whatever it is. They all have certain rhythms to their speech that makes it harder to distinguish who's who, I guess. Um, and it in that way, Sorkin also is rewriting a little bit of history in, you know, make, making, for example, the Joseph Loden, Gordon-Levitt character kind of like a good guy underneath it all, despite the fact that he's the one in charge of prosecuting these these young men uh, who were just trying to to protest the war, the war that we've all come to agree was like a, a bad war. Um, but I do think there's something inspiring in some of the speechifying uh, in the Sorkin-ness of it all. It, he he has a certain rhythm to dialogue that he does. is entertaining, even if it ne- doesn't necessarily need to be entertaining. This is a movie that is not an adaptation of a play, but it feels like it's a play. It feels like everyone has to come in and say their certain line, like you said. I still think that they're able to create their characters, which is two hippies. Uh, what's his name? Who is clearly Aaron Sorkin's favorite go-to uh, person. Um, what's his name? Eddie Redman is Tom Hayden, I think you're talking about. See, the fact that you know who I'm talking about, it's like you can yeah. clearly tell he was siding with certain people, and I feel many times when they have the arguments, um, you can tell who he's siding with. There's a specific argument that right. happens between Eddie Redmayne's character and Sasha Baron Cohen's character, and I say characters because, like you said, he changes a lot of stuff in history, which I did not mind in Molly's game because she had a say in it. I did not mind in Steve Jobs because he's such a prolific figure. This is a little bit different because of the case and what it represents and what it represents now. Um, So when he does things to like Yaya's character where it's like, no, he 
no, he needs more. <laughs> he needs his own movie. He needs his own perspective, mm-hmm. not just for these jokes of look at him and now he's strapped up. Um, there was a that discussion, that debate that happens between the two of them, Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne. And I was like, mm-hmm. it just didn't, I thought it could have been better. And then I catch One Night in Miami and I find a better version of it. And I think that a lot, right, right. you know, a lot of what happens in the movie, it's so hypothetical that whenever they say, the reason I said it reminds me of God's Not Dead is because a lot of the discussions that they have in God's Not Dead, they only see the other point as a hypothetical when the mm-hmm. lawyer is suggesting it. And the same thing happens here. There was even some points that I know is fabricated, but it just made the lawyers look so dumb. I was like, y'all did not think mm-hmm. to check that one there. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just saw all the flaws that I guess people usually complain about Sorkin for, and I'm usually yeah. a lot nicer with and I, And again, it could be me because of the subject matter that I felt he could have played it a little bit better. Right. No, and it could be just like sometimes the the formula doesn't work. You know, I love Sorkin when it comes to the West Wing and I hate Sorkin when it comes to the newsroom. Sometimes it just isn't the right formula. Uh And and for me, I I kind of was with the rhythms of this movie. Um, I think ultimately one of the things that detracted it for me was uh, some of Sorkin's choices as a director. Uh, I think sometimes when you give a Sorkin script to somebody else, you give a Sorkin script to Rob Reiner, or David Fincher, or Danny Boyle, and they're able to rein in some of Sorkin's worst habits, particularly Fincher, who like cuts out all the overwriting and just leaves the eloquence. Uh, but, but here Sor- Sorkin doesn't, he, he, there's a very like TV director, uh, yes. way that this all unfolds. It's very shot reverse shot, you know, uh, it, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it, it's so focused on the dialogue itself rather than the movement of the scenes that it makes it makes it feel that much less naturalistic, I think, through the way that he's presenting it. Mm-hmm. I thought he he probably thought he was going to get another few good men, but that scene never came. So it just felt like he, they were trying to get the next one, the next one, the next one. And you end up yeah. with a lot of order in the courts that just did not need to be done. But eh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll rewatch it. At some point. Yeah. And I do think it does have like the bounciness that I love of Sorkin's dialogue. You know, the way that uh, it'll just bounce between certain characters. And I think sometimes other writers don't have as good of a sense for the timing of dialogue Mm -hmm. as Sorkin does. And the courtroom drama is the perfect showcase for that kind of uh, musical dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's just that some of it is overwritten and overwrought and the characterizations are, are are a little bit weird. You know, uh, they kind of, they take Abby Hoffman, who is this radical figure and kind of make a, make him more centrist in his thinking, which is just strange, but for the story, ultimately I did kind of like this one. Maybe it's just because I really like Aaron Sorkin for sure. I just think that he is a better writer than he is a director. Agreed. Uh, do you want to talk at all about the performances in this one? Because I think a lot of people think uh, this movie, particularly the performances, might be contenders when it comes to award season later this year. I feel like it is mainly just because of the fact that it's an Aaron Sorkin movie and they're right. all past, like, if not Oscar winners, nominees or Emmys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the funniest ones has to be your boy from Succession and all the work that he did <laughs> only to be the least of the seven to be talked about. Jeremy Strong doing a full-on Tommy guy. Chong voice. Poor guy. Uh, he's going for it here. And I like that's another one of those things where I found it entertaining more than I found it good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, I think better performances are... Uh, like I like Sasha Baron Cohen, I even like though Sasha the Baron accent Cohen. isn't always there. Um, I did not like Eddie Redmayne in this movie. It's he, he His performance is very 
big in a movie that I don't know if always calls for it. Also, he does this weird thing where he like is constantly leaning over. I don't know if you noticed that. Like he's not doesn't like stand up. Straight oh yes, movie. okay. Now I'm now I'm picturing him again. His American accent sucked. Yeah. I did not like yeah. it. Like I actually thought it was bad. I was like, "Yo, he's trying way too hard to be it was this a American." Bad performance. Yeah, I and and to me, Eddie Redmayne's always done that. I think he's like a really good actor, but I also think he gives so much that sometimes he will put in yes. a bad performance because he's giving the director what they want, and that's what it was. He was giving the director what he wants. I personally feel. I think, mm-hmm. believe it or not, Mark Rylance was the best one. I think he delivered mm-hmm. the things that. Um, uh, Sorkin wanted him to deliver in uh, smoothly in terms of the yeah. actual court cases whenever it came to like objection. No, this his interference were the best ones. Mm-hmm. Sir, he does not have a lawyer. And I am he not felt like lawyer. a natural fit into Sorkin's world. It made me actually go back and go, OK, he deserved it over over Rocky. <laughs> it almost made me forgive him because he did such a great yeah. job compared to everybody else. Um, Sasha was Sasha. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I did not understand Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's one of those things where it's like I, it made me want to yeah. go look into it more because I felt you weren't playing the person, and I felt that with Yaya as well, especially because, dude, our, our boy Luce, he, he was at, um, Fred Hampton in the back, and I was like, yeah, I did not like because how they ha- just used that as <laughs> a, an intermission break. Not a right. fan of that. First of all. I don't know what it is about Kelvin Harrison Jr. that if he changes his facial hair just even like a slightly bit, I cannot recognize that man. It's called uh, acting. It shouts to him for just being like a chameleon and showing up in all in great movie after great movie recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I kind of did like Yahya Abdul-Mateen in this movie, but I think that's ultimately another problem in terms of how Sorkin wrote this movie, where it, they, they have this whole sequence with Bobby Seale and Fred Hampton and... And it's such a prominent part of the first half of the movie. And then it crescendos in this really dramatic moment, which was taken from real life. I had to look it up because it's shocking what happens. But then it just gets dropped from the movie and never addressed again and it, in a way that is really, really bizarre. And it feels like using that story for the worst, in the worst way. Yeah. And that's the worst case after complaining about all the other things and switch-ups and perspectives that have been swapped. That's my only thing with it. But, you know, yep. I, I look forward to rewatching it. I did not hate it, but I can definitely see the holes in the directing that a lot of people have uh, focused on. And even with the writing, when it gets a little bit too Sorkin-y, I guess. But totally, we'll see. Totally. All right. So uh, that's it for our topic of the week discussion on Trial of the Chicago 7. Let us know what you thought of the latest from Aaron Sorkin and whether or not you think it's going to be a player when it comes to award season. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if it really is going to be a big uh, maybe it'll get like a screenplay or one acting nomination. But I kind of feel like it's not all the way there. Mm Uh, but let us know what you think. Be an inner cutie. Leave a comment. Send us an email. We're going to move on to the final segment, the new to see where we give you our picks for the week. Art, what should the people at home watch? I got two. Um, Adam VOD is Possessor. That is Possessor Uncut, uh, which I'm also looking forward to to catching. I know now that it's out, I just want to make sure people uh, know more about this movie. There is a chance that it may go on streaming because I believe this is also a neon pick, so it may be on Hulu.com eventually, but we'll see. Uh, I really enjoyed this one from Sundance, but what I've been really watching and I can highly recommend that is on a streaming service called HBO is a show called How To with John Wilson that is just absolutely fantastic. I've been loving it. Executively produced, executive, the, the executive producer is Nathan Fielder. Uh, so if you see Nathan for you, there you go. You kind of know what this is hitting up on and uh, it's great. It's a great documentary 
in terms of this man just captures a bunch of things in New York City and then uses random shots that he got in New York City to be able to create this narrative of a how-to. How to scaffolding, how to do small talk. Uh, the newest one with memory. I almost thought he was going to lose it a bit, and then he brought it back. It's very rare for me to see a show week to week uh, to see a show from a week to week basis, and I've been doing that with this. So that should tell you how much I'm really enjoying it. What about you, Zach? Very cool. I'm gonna have to check that one out. Uh, I'm going for my pick for the week. Just one main one. Uh, let's talk City Surreal again, man. Thank you. It's Thank your you. favorite Thank movie you. out of Chicago International Film Festival. Five-part documentary series available through Hulu.com. Man, this okay. This is a documentary, a not insignificant portion of which is about the unbearably dull tedium of collecting signatures required to gain placement on the Chicago mayoral ballot, and then contesting those signatures, and then verifying those same signatures. What? And it is riveting. Zach, who thought thought that that was going to play even more into where we're at right now? Right. Bro, I'm watching the TV. I thought I was watching City So Real again. <laughs> I mean, look, man, this is just a beautiful collage of Chicago, which, you know, you you said uh, this gives you the outlook from ordinary citizens with no power to the people running for mayor, the highest position of power in the city. Uh, it gives you these series of portraits that creates an understanding of the city from so many perspectives. And, and like without really hammering at home, it really becomes notable the difference between the activities and concerns of the white people in this documentary and the people of color, particularly in the first episode with Laquan McDonald. Uh, it ju- just the way in which Steve James is able to lay this all out is so it gives is so comprehensive in its view of how we come up against each other, how our perspectives change our our thoughts on different political happenings. What's cool is in that following the race for mayor, one that involves so many candidates for some, why so many candidates were running for Chicago mayor, I do not understand. But you see like each one of them talks to a different tiny demographic of the city. Right. And, and it, you know, these are all people that are have to live together and, and work together and, coexist in a city together uh i thought it was a very stunning piece of documentary filmmaking uh i also wanted to point out that the interesting thing about episode five to me uh is that we've talked about how so it was a four-part documentary that premiered at sundance Mm -hmm. and then after coronavirus started steve james james went back into production to make episode five and unlike other things that are supposedly going to be about covid and how they kind of feel unnecessary right now I feel like this is different because it's the extension of a series that we came to before COVID and it feels less intrusive and unwelcomed. It's just like, this is the next stage of Chicago. Mm-hmm. This is Chicago under COVID the rest of Chicago without it's, it's, it's just so well done, man. I was blown away. Yeah, I it, thought it was great. It was that fifth episode that made, that made it five stars for me for sure. I was right there. I was right there. And then he hits me with that fifth episode. I thought it was fantastic waiting for an episode six yeah. and you're right. So many COVID stuff we're going to get. We've been joking that we're going to go to Sundance next year. It's going to be a dozen COVID features. But this one, it, it's a cheat code that it already had established its story for with four episodes in 2019. That when you come back and you just get to follow up the barber, you get to follow up the Lyft driver, and then everybody else, I don't know, it just, it, it shows the impact of what happened this year much better than a yeah. lot of other things are. I, I just feel. Yeah. And masterpiece in my opinion. 
Yeah. It's also really cool just watching Laurie Lightfoot go from like this person on the sidelines of the documentary to kind of being like the center stage of it. The behind the scenes um, he talked about was incredible about how he had to approach them and stuff like that. And he mentions about being in the barbershops and the drastic difference between both barbershops. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great. Talking about the barbershop, something that's kind of awesome about this series, I feel like every episode there's one fight where you're just a fly on the wall and it's like people are really screaming at each other (laughs) in a way that like, you know, if it was like a world star video, you'd watch it twice. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so good, man. I I really like this one. I'm glad you really liked it. Yeah, it was fantastic. And like I said, can't wait to hopefully see more of it. Who knows? We'll see. Absolutely. The go. All right, so that's all for this week's show. You can catch more from me, Zach Shevich, by following me on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterbox at Zshevich. That's Z-S-H-E-V as in variety, I-C-H, art. Where can people find more from you? You can find me at LME Explain on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, but you can catch me every week here on the Intercut Podcast. You can listen to every episode of the Intercut Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcatcher is. I like Overcast. And then make sure you subscribe not just to the audio feed, but to the video feed as well on YouTube.com slash IntercutPod, where you can watch our bright, smiling faces as we break down the latest in entertainment. Find new episodes of Intercut every Friday. Please leave us a comment, like the video, and consider heading over to iTunes to give us that five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. Also, like our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. All of them are at IntercutPod to get updates throughout the week from art, from me, from anybody that we feature here on Intercut. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, don't accept an endorsement from Kanye West. Just don't. Doesn't work for mayors. Doesn't work for presidents. Don't. That's the curse, huh?